0: Welcome back to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary Chinese movements, starting from about 1839 with the Opium War. This is your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is a love letter and a farewell, farewell letter to that country. Um, this... Uh, they're just the usual beginning announcements. Uh, I'm trying to see if I can get to 100 paid subscribers to start producing supplementary episodes. Um, there's also the Substack for greater connection with the podcast. Uh, if you'd like to get involved with any of that, please email me at Revolutions at gmail.com. Um, working on building the community. Uh, so, uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. If you'd like to see the substack, it's chineserevolutions.substack.com. Uh, and we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can have links to all those at chineserevolutions.com. The intro to this episode, uh, this episode is more about the longer Chinese historical context in which the changes we're about to see are happening. Uh, so our podcast is about modern Chinese history through the lens of Chinese revolutionary movement, but something had to be revolutioned before you know it could be what it is today. Uh, the closer you get to the present day, the more minor characters are important. Like, so, Chairman Mao's dentist is more important than some emperors of China. I don't know who his dentist was, but it's like the, the thing is, uh, the, like, say, the policy of providing services to high-level government leaders might be a pivotal thing in the transition t- uh, from one president of China to the next. You know, And maybe we'll see that in the next 20 years or something. Um, what What counts as corruption? What counts as legitimacy of power? Uh, so today's episode is a Wikipedia-fueled summary of the traditional Chinese structures that are changing over the course of the history that we're covering in this podcast. Uh, one thing to remember about China, it is a literate society directly connected to its own original culture. Where the Roman Empire contributed models for new nations to use, China is a continuous civilization despite breakups and reunifications of the state. Uh, The legitimacy of any current regime is derived from continuity with previous dynasties, and even today the Communist Party of China bases its legitimacy on its continuity with the uh, welfare and the prosperity, uh, seeking to achieve these, of, of the Chinese nation and civilization, despite its radical departure from the dynastic model. Modernization did borrow extensively from American and European structures, but all of this is reinterpreted to fit China. So then, like, okay, I'm an American. If you look at American civilization, we explicitly borrow from English precedents, uh, and English civilization goes back to Norse and medieval French, uh, and those go, uh, well, especially for the French, goes back to Roman civilization, which itself borrowed promiscuously from its neighbors that came before it. So we're, you know, our civilization comes from a civilization that comes from a civilization that comes from a civilization, whereas China has one continuous civilization that does admit influence from outside, but is where it has always been. Uh, The... So let's take a look at the Chinese imperial system. So there's rule over China. So uh, Qian Shi Huang was the first emperor of China for the Qin Dynasty. Qin, if you're looking that up. Uh, he died in 210 BC. This is uh, about the time of the Roman Republic. You know, so when Rome is kind of figuring out how to start an empire. This is about the time of the wars with Carthage. Uh, So, uh, Qian Shi Huang standardized written Chinese. He set the precedent in traceable history for a unified China. He conquered all of the smaller states. Uh, Even when the imperial system is abolished, the idea of a unified Chinese state for a new government engine to be installed in Sustains. So even as China has had to redefine itself through various you know, decades of the what they call the century of humiliation, China holds on. China sustains. Excuse me. Uh, the for many centuries, China was the center of East Asian civilization. They were like the sun of a solar system. Even nomadic tribes that would conquer, they would borrow from whatever Chinese elites did for, for their structures and things like this. Um, that would go back and forth. Uh, the, uh, like, if you look at Russian history, a lot of Russian government habits come from the Mongols. Uh, so uh, everybody rubbed off on everybody else. Uh, States that are able to consistently break away and restore their own dynasties still remain in China's gravitational pull during the imperial era. Um, Even though China did directly conquer neighboring states from time to time, and, you know, this is how China came to be the size that it is today, they would conquer and absorb neighboring states. Uh, so places like Japan, okay, that's islands, but the neighboring continental civilization is China. So that's where they might get a lot of their uh, traditional literary structures, uh, how how they plan their imperial palaces, Korea, a lot of the same things. But Korea was not so directly connected to uh, the heartland of Chinese civilization because they were on a peninsula, and they could access, say, you know, Shandong province, province which is where Confucius is from. Actually, uh, a, a branch of the Confucian family went over to Korea because of—I forget when this happened in Chinese history—but you have many Koreans who are direct descendants of Confucius because Korea held to Confucianism, um, but they weren't where whatever the bad thing was that was happening in China that made them want to run away to somewhere else. Um, the the Chinese heartland did not extend up to the land above the Korean peninsula. So for many centuries, Korea had the ability for its own culture to, to really set, um, Yet they're still in the Chinese cultural sphere. Vietnam, Thailand, Burma, Central Asia, these were areas over which China had enormous influence, but didn't consistently control uh through direct conquest. Today's Northwest China, you know, in history was far more loosely controlled. Uh like so you'd have client states that periodically would receive visits by Chinese armies, uh but they there there weren't like chinese police stations across the taklamakan desert like there are today uh, modern transportation and logistics makes it possible for the chinese state to rule such rugged areas as uh, northwest china and tibet uh the disruption Uh, of this system with the advance of European imperial expansion really contributes to the radical Chinese reassessment of their place in the world order. Uh, uh, One thing that we'll see uh, when we get more to dealing with material in the book, The Invention of China by Bill Hayton, is that he uh, describes the process by which the Qing dynasty made deals with the uh, Russian Empire uh, drawing land boundaries between China and uh, eastward expanding Russia. Uh, that was okay, according to Hayton, that was something that the Manchus kept secret from the Chinese because, like the the notion of hard European borders, your Euro- hard European style borders wasn't really something that the Chinese. Really had as part of their understanding of how the world worked. Um, as, so one of the things we're going to see is Chinese intellectuals uh, absorbing and learning to use for their own purposes, uh, interna- well, European international precedents. Uh, okay, let's see. Ah, yeah. And one one of the one of the things we see is uh, medical advances in European uh, uh, medical practice. Uh, made it possible for Europeans to consistently defeat tropical disease, and so that made it possible for European officials, European armies to be consistently on station in the tropics around the world. So then, you know, your neighbor was whoever could sail up to your shore, and that this was a radical departure from the past where you know delegations from far away might come and kowtow to the son of heaven or trying to borrow the um purple prose uh, describing um anyway the so you know delegations might come um but not anything like a battle fleet showing up off the chinese coast um okay now we're going to talk about Confucian scholarship, Confucian ethics. Uh, there was a huge em- emphasis. Again, I'm drawing from things I've known about China, what I looked up on Wikipedia just now. So this is the good enough for now summary. Uh, it, like a huge emphasis on governing yourself and governing the nation in line with a cosmic order. So. Uh, There are literal Confucian temples. Somebody came up with the idea of Confucian churches. Um, It's not quite a religion. It's somewhat parallel to Platonic or Aristotelian philosophy and kind of the the spaces they carve out for uh, religious matters. Uh, But there's... There are notions in Confucianism for relating to the divine relating to God or heaven, but a lot of it is more about organizing oneself and one's affairs rightly in relation to that so that you don't screw it up by getting out of sync with that by you know being in discord with you know with cosmic reality uh so uh, so definitely a philosophy with with a lot of connections to religious practice Uh, the examination system uh the absolute so just for some context here the absolute fastest that a student could finish this series of extremely difficult examinations uh from what i could tell is 13 years um Like, these are extremely difficult examinations. Uh, So There was the annual county or prefecture examination. Then every three years, there's a higher level examination. Then every three years, there's yet another provincial level examination. Then every three years, there's a metropolitan examination. So maybe that's like like in big cities uh, outside your province you'd go there for that exam and then the every three years the palace examination like the the very very highest uh, the very highest bureaucrats the highest scholars would presumably go to the capital for these examinations so something we're going to see is that all the washouts who are nevertheless well educated but didn't make it in the examinations they are a lot of the people who are going to be really critical for a lot of the later revolutions. You know, just because somebody didn't go to university doesn't mean that they're not smart or not educated. You know, sometimes people who only read stuff at the library are much better than people who have PhDs. I mean, like with I, I don't know what's going on with modern universities, but like if you actually study things that describe the world and not just how to effect a revolution, you can, as an amateur, become more well-educated than some PhD holders today. Um, the, so you're going to see those guys at the center of a lot of these revolutions, Um, Formally rising through this system uh, was a major source of legitimacy. Like so non-Han dynasties had to harmonize with this cultural institution, and Han could rise even in non-Han imperial systems because this was their culture, this was their system. So even where the Manchus would do... Manchu things in the Forbidden City kind of keeping on their nomadic culture externally they would have to take on the forms of Chinese imperial rule Um, so you'd kind of have a structure like peasants or workers on the bottom kind of educated teachers merchants Kind of above there, then you'd have bureaucrats who did pass the examinations and then above you'd have the ruling dynasty and the aristocracy. So revolutionaries are going to come especially out of the um, kind of in the middle there. They're educated, but they didn't pass the prestige levels to actually have official position within the imperial bureaucracy. Um, one of the interesting figures we're going to meet as we do the, uh, as we do the Taiping Rebellion, he's a Han Chinese guy, Zeng Guofan, who is a Chinese, he was a Confucian educated bureaucrat who was appointed to uh, create the armies to crush the Taiping Rebellion. Well, uh, some people wonder why he didn't go ahead and and uh, replace the Qing dynasty with a Han dynasty. Not the Han dynasty, but a new Han nationality dynasty. Uh, he presumably he saw the Qing dynasty as being legitimate, but he, but he was Han. He has a very interesting legacy. We'll get to him later. And so this this holds up even in modern China, the importance of education and passing examinations. If you ever hear about the Gaokao, the Chinese college entrance exam, it's the fairest thing they've got to distribute a limited number of university slots. Uh, the central government keeps revising education regulations to ensure it's fair for everybody. Um, I used to be an English teacher in China. I... Just kind of looking ahead, I knew that something was gonna change like this uh the like I was gonna to need to either really become a good English teacher or I was gonna to need to get out and go do something else. I took the get out and go do something else route, and so later, after I've gotten out and gone to do something else the uh, the chinese money supported system of of uh, teaching English online that a lot of people did. And some of them would even fund like lifetime vacations. Um, you know, like, we, like they would teach English online and then live in Thailand. Well, all of that collapsed because the Chinese government, um, changed the regulations for, um, for, for educating children to, to level the playing field that the so the the importance of exams it's not just uh, some modern thing this has deep roots in Chinese history that theoretically any you know, poor child could pass the exams and go on to be some high-level uh, Official in a, you know, serving the ruling dynasty. That, the, so the uh, one of the problems we're going to see uh, in the revolutions here is okay. So the the Confucian system was defeated by the foreigners coming in, but the the use of an exam uh, as the you know, if you can pass the exam, then you can be a high official that this is something with very, very deep roots in Chinese culture and history. Uh, uh, Confucian education uh, emphasized the cultivation of character, virtue, and loyalty, you know, in, you know, so one of the problems that we see with, uh, with these revolutions is is you know, can can the educated class expand to include more people, to broaden the base of support for whatever the regime is at at the time. Well we see that the Qing dynasty didn't manage this. Okay, so under Confucianism there's five constants one benevolence or humaneness, two righteousness or justice, three Property, the uh, propriety or rights, R I T E S, like so, the formal pattern in which things are done. Four, wisdom or knowledge. Five, sincerity faithfulness. The four virtues, including righteousness from above. One, loyalty. Two, filial piety, like being like attention to f- to family. Three, continence, self-control. Four, again, righteousness. So we're going to see an emerging dichotomy between Western learning and traditional Chinese scholarship, as though the two are mutually exclusive. So uh, one of the things you see in modern China is, is is an effort to synthesize. Because, okay, so it doesn't matter who invented calculus, that's what you need to put up that bridge over the river gorge, way out in Western China, but it is the Chinese culture that is the one that we are perpetuating today, is what they might be thinking. Um, the So the as you look at the efforts on the Chinese side to modernize, it's the emperor and the traditional Confucian bureaucrats are the ones who lost the war, so to speak, to the foreigners. So then chinese reformers are going to see what they can borrow from foreign learning the okay let's look at the chinese economy the what we're looking at here is the critical difference between the industrial and mercantile powers and then the the, the china that is about to be radically transformed so this one is going to be a bit sparse mostly focusing on the dynamics we'll see in play as the story gets rolling um, so China was very solidly agrarian, classically agrarian. You know, other trades are supported by the surplus of agriculture. You know, so you can you know have Chinese porcelain, the you know growing tea, various other crafts and things like this. So it, it's a you know Chinese civilization is as awesome as as we think it is, um, but it's. There wasn't very much application of machine power to solve problems of labor like like a, one of the things you see in the Taiping rebellion is they advance up rivers to you know the next city they want to go to um like like a river is a very natural road, but that's it's not like they have the earth movers to create a modern paved highway. You know, like like you see in China today, um, it's just it's the old. You know, the rivers have been roads for thousands of years. So that's so. Where you see any activity going on in China, it's along a river until they bring in the modern technology. Uh, the essential difference between eighteen hundred and say fifteen hundred is not big. Uh, one side of the Opium War has industrial revolution supported global power projection and the other does not. So British battle fleet showing up off the Chinese coast versus you know, Chinese coastal defenses uh, may be more set up to repel pirate fleets than modern European uh, battle fleets. Um, so it's not just those greedy British versus those helpless Chinese, but those rapidly advancing Uh, constantly competing British versus the Chinese managing their status quo and losing a status quo, that they were in different postures. And one was on a much more aggressive rise, and the other was was working on maintaining a status quo. And they weren't Uh, advancing with the same competitive, aggressive edge. Uh, The tributary system. uh, Tribute is a gift from a subordinate to a superior. Uh, So it's wealth by exaction, by extraction, by gift. If it's done well, it can pay for the maintenance of peace and order, but the, the extent to which it's regulated... Um, uh, the 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 extent to which trade is regulated reflects the extent to which it's a headache for the central imperial administration. Otherwise, trade just happens. I mean, it's it's going to happen, but uh, the China didn't have the same industrial level uh, merchant activity as as was shown by the East India Company. Uh, China had a centralized money system, so it's good for regulating the imperial economy, transferring value from one end of the continental empire to the other, but stress on that system is going to threaten the le- legitimacy of the ruling regime. So lately when you get the problem with silver and the uh, British uh, export of opium to China to get some of that silver out, uh, and the the problem uh, conver- converting between the Chinese copper money and the silver money. Okay, piracy, um, this one's going to be kind of vague. Uh, Chinese maritime power, like formal naval power, comes and goes. It's more of a land power than a maritime power uh, in imperial Chinese history. Uh, but banditry comes back all the time. So lack of... Um, so so like so the lack of chinese crime and piracy right now is really a credit to the current regime so everybody's able to be prosperous enough with a formal job and the police are strong enough to suppress a lot of of uh, pirate activities uh, a lot of criminal activities like might have been common in previous centuries you know so that's that's one thing to say about the uh, the current regime, um, you know. But then, if you want to raise the question of whether uh, the the pirates have taken on a different form, is one that we can bring up in a different podcast. Um, Chinese secret societies and bandit groups are going to be important in the ferment leading up to the fall of the Qing. Um, some of uh, Chiang Kai-shek's supporters were members of Chinese secret societies. Uh, a lot of the... like, If you ever look at any of the Irish revolutionary movements, like the Irish Republican Brotherhood, um, that's kind of one of the forerunner organizations to the Irish Republican Army. Um, you know, Then when they won independence, all that was able to come out into the open well you see chinese equivalents uh, merchants do exist there's kind of contention over the centuries between educated wealthy officials and uh wealthy merchants so compare pre pre-revolutionary french aristocracy and the bourgeois trade mem- uh uh tradesmen who bought their way into the, areas, the into the area into the aristocracy what is that um the desire of educated tradespeople to have more legitimate influence. So the, so the question of balancing the power of wealth and the creation of wealth against the, the extraction of wealth and the monopoly on the legitimacy of power held by the state. You know, so yeah, the state can legitimately bring together an army, but how are you going to pay for that? uh, okay,' we'll, we'll take money from the rich to do that. but if you keep doing that, then maybe they'll decide to replace your regime. Okay, so to, so this episode has kind of been a meandering from topic to topic covering the background of Chinese history, Uh, especially the stuff that's going to change as the revolutions get underway. Um, The revolutions that we're going to cover are coming to terms with the old order being radically challenged and China basically having to reinvent and redefine itself against new forces. Um, Before, the old dynasty slips and new rulers with fresh energy and gusto jump in and become the next dynasty, but now the foundations of legitimacy are having to be redefined. Uh, So it wasn't that the Chinese empire was at the center of a a cultural universe, it's that they were having to redefine themselves against the whole world now being able to show up on their doorsteps. Um, So... Uh, Before I sign off, I'd like to give you an idea of what the next episodes are going to be. One episode is going to be the McCartney mission and British attempts to connect directly with the Qing government through like formal diplomacy of equals. Uh, We're going to look at the opium trade and Chinese efforts to suppress that trade. Then we'll look at the British reaction like what it was that happened on the British side that led to a British battle fleet being sent to China. We're going to look at the conduct of the Opium War. Uh, we'll look at the settlement of the war and the treaty ports. And then the part that I'm especially excited about is okay, we're going to do at least two episodes on Protestant Christian missionary efforts. So we're going to you know, just kind of sum up what Protestantism is and how that and its influence into china really contributed to the start of the taiping rebellion that there are certain ways that uh, un- that uniquely protestant ministers um connected to the start of the taiping rebellion but then also how they interacted with the taiping the the Taiping were around for like ten years or so, ten years, twenty years. Um, there the, there was a very long period of formal control of large areas of China by this revolutionary regime, Um uh, and so you you so that's that and there's a reason why Protestant and not Catholic. So we'll get to that in a few episodes again if you'd like to support the podcast buymeacoffee.com crpodcast um i just i like that platform um i i can get my own coffee i prefer instant anyway um okay chinese revolutions.substack.com um if you're interested in seeing any of that develop please send me an email at at gmail at gmail.com i'm working on building the community As I sign out for this episode, I just want to say, yeah, this, I covered a whole lot very quickly. Uh, If you'd like to set me straight on any particular points, please feel free to do so. Again, ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. But uh, this is more of getting the idea of what things are going to change. So if I got it good enough, that's good enough for this, for the purpose of this podcast for right now. We'll be getting a lot more exact the closer we get into the present day. All right, so this has been Nathan Bennett, and I'll see you on the next episode.